Today on Against the Grain, Latin America has played a crucial role for the United States as an empire, and historian Greg Grandin argues that Latin America's importance stretches well beyond the regional interests of the United States in the Western Hemisphere. Instead, Grandin posits, the countries south of the border have been used as a crucible for the formation of American policy such as applying the lessons from counterinsurgency against the left in El Salvador and Colombia to the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. From the studios of KPFA in Berkeley, California, this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. Twice last century, in the 1900s, the United States turned to Latin America to regroup following systemic global crises. So writes Greg Grandin in his classic book, newly revised, Empire's Workshop, Latin America, the United States, and the Making of an Imperial Republic. One of those moments was during the Great Depression, and the other was in the 1980s, when the new right helmed by the likes of Jean Kirkpatrick and other neoconservatives such as Elliot Abrams, who had come to prominence again during the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. Grandin argues that, paradoxically, Latin American resistance to U.S. domination has had surprisingly beneficial consequences for the U.S. as an empire. He's professor of history at Yale University and won the Pulitzer Prize last year for the end of the myth. Greg, Broadly speaking, how important has Latin America been for the United States as an imperial power? It's been critically important. I think that its importance is, is unacknowledged in, in a profound sense, and that in many ways is the, is the larger point of the book. It's easy to talk about Latin America as a site in which the U.S. Um, uh, imposes its imperial will uh, uh, carries out coups and regime changes and pays no attention to the consequences, to disastrous results. But more important, or at least there's another story to tell, and that's the way Latin America serves to to kind of um, socialize the United States in many ways. I mean, Latin America was a challenge to the to, to the founders of the United States. They they immediately had to deal with the fact that that the Western Hemisphere was filled up with multiple republics, and uh, and 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 they shared with um, with the founders of the United States a sense of American exceptionalism. And I think that Latin America is kind of the missing ingredient when when all of the discussions about what is and isn't exceptional about the United States is its relationship with Latin America, and I think that it. That relationship is two things. On the one hand, Latin America, just the fact that it constantly has resisted and pushed back against U.S. expansion in ways that, say, European empires prior to the collapse of Spain and England in in the Western Hemisphere or indigenous communities couldn't. Latin America, as sovereign modern nations, uh, were able to resist and push back ideologically, economically, and politically. And that pushback had a way of forcing the United States to figure out new strategies on, of, on how to project its power. So it had this enormous, on the one hand, it, it socialized the United States and, and, and restrained the United States, and continue, to use a word that's often used with U.S. foreign policy, but in the opposite direction, it contained the United States. Uh, on the other hand, at, at the same time, it also was this place where, and this is one of the overarching arguments of the book, where ascendant political coalitions within the United States used to work out its their worldview and their tactics and their uh, and, to, and to reconcile contradictions among different constituencies, and and that I think is something that is. Is, is absent from most discussions of the relationship of Latin America to the United States. It's easy to talk about Latin America as this place of where the U.S. empire has run roughshod. It's much more difficult to understand the way Latin America has shaped the domestic politics of the United States. And that's, that's one of the things that I hope to do in this book. One of the things that you do in Empire's Workshop is argue that 
in two periods following major crises for the United States and uh, really crises of global capitalism, that Latin America was used by the U.S. state to shift orientation, uh, shore up political alliances, and in some ways work out the mess of the, the crisis that it was in. And the first of those moments was with FDR and the New Deal in the 1930s. What compelled the U.S. state under FDR to change its orientation to Latin America at that time, and what consequences did it have for political alliances in the U.S.? Yeah, and that is, again, just that's the focus of the book, the way Latin America serves as this crucible for for political realignment in the United States. And the book does look at the New Deal with FDR and the, and the New Right. But um, in terms of the New Deal, if you think of the period prior to Franklin Delano Roosevelt's election in 1932, if you start that period, say, in, 19, in 1898, when the U.S., uh, basically leaped into territorial empire. And, you know, we could have discussions about definitions, and obviously the expansion across the continent was, and, and the taking of Texas and a third of Mexico was a, was a territorial empire. But but really, the 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 landing of troops in Puerto Rico and 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 uh, and, and Cuba and the Philippines and the annexing of Puerto Rico and the annexing of the Philippines and um, the turning Cuba into a neo-colony uh, was a kind of qualitative jump. And from 1898 to 1933, what the United States witnessed in the Caribbean basin was, um, was a kind of radicalization of a region that we, that's in some ways analogous to the Middle East, where serial interventions didn't secure U.S. power, but actually led to a hemorrhaging of U.S. power. Um, and waves of radicalization growing. Uh, I think this word is questionable, anti-Americanism. I think, I think using that phrase anti-Americanism obscures the content of the critique, but setting that criticism aside, I'll use the word anti-Americanism. So waves of anti-Americanism throughout Latin America. And, and of course, 1929 was the, great, was, the, was the collapse of the stock market and the beginnings of the Great Depression. So there was this enormous, not only on the one hand did you have these serial interventions, military interventions in, in, in Haiti, in the Dominican Republic, in Nicaragua, uh, in Cuba, in, in, in Mexico, that, 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 were, that, were, that led to the opposite of the projection of U.S. power. It led to a kind of deflation of U.S. power in, in, in many ways. And, the, you know, and then on the other hand, you had the, this great economic contraction with the Great Depression. So... The election of Roosevelt in 1932 and his inauguration in early 1933 really was, um, really was the a kind of classic political realignment. And by that, I'm, I'm using a phrase that's that's a concept that's often used by political science to talk about the history of the United States. Think about the history of the United States as a series, as a succession of of, of political coalitions within the two-party system. So aside from the Civil War, for the most part, political conflict is contained within the two-party system through these political realignments. So as, as, as times change, as politics change, as economic change, it can no longer be contained or be worked out through the existing two-party system and the, and the ideas and the relationships with, which uphold that system, there's this realignment. And, and obviously the New Deal and, and the developmentalism and the expansion of the federal government with, that the New Deal implied and the reorientation uh, of what it meant to be citizen, what citizenship meant to, to include a, a notion, a fairly robust notion of social citizenship was what marked the New Deal from the previous period. But in terms of foreign policy, FDR is, is, is known for the famous phrase, uh, Good neighbor policy, which he which he which he used for the first time in his inauguration in his March 1933 inauguration, but he wasn't referring specifically to the Latin America when he said, in the realm of foreign affairs, this nation is dedicated to being a good nation. He was talking about the world in general, but uh, and he only really dedicated a 
you know, a few sentences to foreign policy in that inauguration because obviously there was a lot, there was a domestic crisis that was, that, that superseded any concern for foreign policy in 1933. But the fact is that in most of the rest of the world, um, FDR was cut off, right? Militarism was on the rise in Asia. There was European um, states uh, carved out colonial realms. Uh, there was there was there was fascism, uh, you know, also on the rise in in Europe. So so in some, in many ways, Latin America was the only region where where the U.S. had access to. So FDR turned to Latin America, and and what that turn entailed. At its essence was the acceptance of a long-standing demand, and Latin American lawyers and diplomats and jurists had long been demanding that the United States give up the right to intervention, uh, that they accept the what they call the absolute sovereignty in domestic and foreign relations of, of of Latin America. This was an ideal that has deep roots in Latin American, in Spanish American, and Portuguese American political culture some ways going back to the colonial period. Um, but it really, in, 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 in reaction to U.S. militarism and U.S. expansion, a new generation at the end of the 1800s and the early 1900s began to really forcefully demand this re what would have been a revision to international law, like the, the idea of great power diplomacy and, you know, the big powers rule. You 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 know you wage war if you can and you take what you can get, and Latin America performed a much more moral vision of what the international order should look like, and the U.S. had long resisted that until it couldn't, and there's a very specific moment. There's the seventh Pan American Conference in Montevideo, Uruguay. Uh, it's important. It it happens in 1933, and it's in this context in which the U.S. doesn't really have. Uh, have much uh, much pull in in the rest of the world because of all of those reasons I talked about earlier. So FDR dispatches a Secretary of State Cordell Hull to go to Montevideo, and he says he says basically you you know give them whatever they want you know give them runway uh, lights so they can fly, land planes at night and promise to build roads do anything but don't accept the principle of of absolute sovereignty. But Cordell Hull in Montevideo had very little. Uh, options. I mean, he was basically basically ganged up on him with the United States in, in, in this political and economic contraction. Hull conceded to Latin American demands. And it, it might have been the most successful uh, foreign policy about face in U.S. history because it didn't lead to a collapse of U.S power to accept and recognize the, the absolute sovereignty of, of, of a nation, no matter how small, in the internal and external affairs. And actually, that becomes the principle of the United Nations. That becomes the principle, the founding kind of core ideal of liberal multilateralism. The Latin, in, in, in many other ways, Latin America allows Washington to figure out ways to project its power free from the militarism that had been dragging it down in, in, in Central America through these multilateral institutions. And then what it what it what shorthand is known as the good neighbor policy, um, a series of alliances and treaties, the creation of the organization of American states, mutual defense pacts become become the model for what the U.S. puts into place after World War II. And let me just say one more thing. Um, uh, this, this acceptance of the ideal of non-intervention and absolute sovereignty also allows Cordell Hull to sign a series of free trade agreements. And those free trade agreements, and, the, and these are real free trade agreements, not what passes for free trade agreements today, which are basically just institutionalization of corporate monopoly rents and, and, and intellectual property rights. These were, these were really kind of opening up, uh, opening up markets. That has, the, that has the effect of strengthening a key corporate base of what becomes the New Deal coalition, this, this labor-intensive, export-driven, high-tech uh, series of industries, pharmaceuticals, chemical, the uh, uh, energy, sophisticated manufacturing, um, all of these, all of these industries, in exchange for FDR basically opening up foreign markets, 
begin to support what's called the Second New Deal. Remember, FDR's first New Deal, the National Recovery Act and a series of other, what was, was struck down by the Supreme Court. Social Security, all of these things that we associate with the New Deal uh, is, is basically what, what U.S. historians call the Second New Deal. And, it's, and it only becomes possible because FDR was able to cultivate ties with this key industri- key economic sector that that wasn't that wasn't opposed to his expansion of labor rights, for instance, as opposed to the the, the labor extensive industries of textile and you know shoe making and furniture making and all of those that that basically stay out of the New Deal coalition. So that's an example of how Latin America helps the New Deal build itself build its alliances, you know, its economic foundation, and allows the new, this new alliance, this new coalition, a new deal coalition to work out its ideas of how to have how the United States could project its power in the world through multilateralism, through institutions, through mutual defense treaties. And, and it's obviously enormously successful. The New Deal goes on to win World War II. It goes on after World War II to to um, to build this multilateral order. Um, the other thing that Latin America is key for is is it teaches the United States how to kind of move back and forth between the institutions, universal institutions like the United Nations and regional institutions. So the United States. It didn't want to be bound down or tied down by by the universalism of the United Nations. It could always appeal to the organization of American state and, and obligations. The organization. So that 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 kind of regional treaty alliance system, with the U.S. creates CETO in Southeast Asia, NATO in Europe, that becomes key to the United States' agility to confront the so to take on the Soviet Union and, and, and maneuver during the Cold War. So Latin America, be, that's what I mean by Latin America as a workshop, as a training ground, as as a way that 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 political coalitions work out their sense of themselves. I'm speaking with historian Greg Grandin about his book Empire's Workshop, Latin America, the United States and the Making of an Imperial Republic. That's recently revised. Greg Grandin is the historian and Pulitzer Prize-winning writer. I'm Sasha Lilly, and this is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So the 1970s marked a moment of, of great defeat and disarray for the United States following the Vietnam War, following Watergate, as well as a global economic crisis of capitalism, and in many ways an unraveling of that uh, New Deal order that had been put in place in the 1930s. How were interventions into Latin America in the 1980s a response to those crises? Yes. So Empire's Workshop looks at both the New Deal and then the New Right as the as the quintessential 20th century political coalitions. And it takes the 1970s and and the collapse of the New Deal order around around crises such as Vietnam, such as Watergate, such as such as the, the you know general spread of political dissent at home, revelations of the of the of the crimes committed by U.S. security forces abroad and against domestic dissent at home, um, and and uh, and looks at at, at, at the Carter administration as kind of a transitional presidency, giving rise to the Reagan uh, 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 White House, and and it looks at Reaganism as a social movement, as 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 a new right political coalition that displaces, that takes over from the New Deal, and 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 in many ways, Reagan takes office in 1981, he's elected in 1980, and. Um, and, he, and he, obviously he runs on a program of restoring U.S. power and moral authority in the world, right? A lot of neoconservative analysts, such as Gene Kirkpatrick, um, they see the crisis not just as a crisis of power, but a crisis of confidence, right? That, that Vietnam scrambled the establishment's ability to, to act in the world with a sense of confidence and, and, and assuredness that what it was doing was good. 
And, um, and so Reagan's task and Reaganism's task wasn't just to reassert power, but, but remoralize power, remoralize militarism and remoralize markets. And he comes to power in 1981, and there's not a lot of places, again, thinking, you know, this is where there's a similarity with, with FDR. There's not a lot of places in the world where the U.S. can actually act. The Soviet Union is still in existence. They still have nuclear weapons. Uh, the Middle East, the U.S. has made its post-Vietnam turn to the Middle East, but the, you know, the Middle East is, 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 is uh, split between, in its allegiances between the Soviet Union and the United States. Um, and this, there was the, the revolution in Iran with, with, um, with the fall of the Shah and the, and the rise of the Islamist state. Um, and, uh, and, you know, Africa was, was, was also, its allegiances were split. In Latin America, most of the rest of South America uh, was locked down under a series of anti-communist dictatorships that the U.S., coups that the U.S. had supported. I mean, we know about Chile in 1973, but Uruguay in 1973, Bolivia in 71, you know, Paraguay, Argentina in 76. So South America was secure. South America was locked down and was like a garrison continent. But in Central America, Central America was in revolt. The Sandinistas had won their revolution in 1979. There were powerful insurgencies in El Salvador and in, in, in Nicaragua. Um, and, and so the Reagan administration uses Central America much the way the, F, the Roosevelt administration used Latin America to, um, to work out ideas, work out tactics, get a sense of themselves as an aspiring coalition. And one of the arguments of Empire's Workshop is that the importance of Central America resided in its unimportance. It had no nuclear weapons. Uh, it was firmly within the U.S.'s sphere of influence. The Soviet Union wasn't going to object. It had client. It had clients it could work with uh, and, and, and were eager to work with the United States. And so Reagan could give Central America, could, you know, and whether we're talking about the Contra War in Nicaragua or the debt squads in El Salvador and Guatemala, to movement conservatives with little fear of consequences. By the way, I'm not, the person who identifies Central America as, as, uh, as, as critically important is Gene Kirkpatrick. Sometime around 19, Reagan had named Kirkpatrick. Uh, ambassador to the UN and elevated that position to a cabinet post. And Kirkpatrick said that um, that Central America is critically important, uh, the most important region in the world today for the United States. You know, at the time, people had trouble uh, trying to figure out exactly what she meant. I mean, there wasn't, you know, there was no oil. There was, you know, there wasn't a lot going on in Central America. But, but the argument is that is the argument that I make is that it's important, really science, and it's unimportant. And and by what I mean by that, he gave Central America to movement conservatives. He gave Central America to different branches of movement conservatives. Um, Central America becomes the 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 crucible for different constituencies of what would become the coherent new right. So neoconservatives, secular neoconservatives, religious theocons, militarists radicalized by the Vietnam War, radicalized to the right, um, soldier of fortune type mercenaries. All of these people, Reagan basically let loose in Central America and, and let them run, you know, it, it, Central America was the place where Reagan could match word for deed with little fear of consequences. And that experience, I mean, we talk about, we talk about Nicaragua and people joke about the Sandalistas in Nicaragua and the importance of Nicaragua for, for the left as a kind of a pilgrimage site. But, you know, scratch somebody in the new right, you know, and, and you'll find that they, they somehow, Eric Prince, for instance, did spend some time, you know, having something to do with the, with the Contra War in Nicaragua. This is of Blackwater fame. Yeah, yeah, Blackwater fame. So, you know, there, there was a way and there was a way in which Central America allows these relations to thicken. And allows these and allows contradictions, tensions between secular neoconservatives who weren't main, you didn't, who, whose vision of a restoration of American power after Vietnam, you know, wasn't necessarily religious based, um, but but they were able to find alliances and work together with with Pentecostals and evangelicals. And key to all of this is liberation theology. 
liberation theology as the radicalization of the Catholic Church, you know, was was powerful in Central America. And Sandinista revolution was as much Christian as it was Marxist. Liberation theology was strong in El Salvador, Oscar Romero and his assassination in 1980, the execution of the Jesuits at the end of the decade. Um, it was powerful in Guatemala. So liberation theology becomes the first political religion that unites the new right before they move on to Islam. And why this is important is that it forces the new right to think through the morality of capitalism and militarism, right? It's one thing to be able to just project power. It's another thing to, to, to justify it in moral terms. And, and a lot of the kind of remoralization of markets that we associate with libertarianism you know, there's a strong component of that was was forged an argument against liberation theology, and I go through this in the book, um, into to a, to a great degree. You know, where liberation theologians said the market was an amoral uh, site of greed, and that militarism was a you know militarism made life miserable for the world's poor. You know, uh, 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 evangelical economists arguing directly against liberation theology said that the market was a place that 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 um that reflected god's grace that 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 by striving to overcome you you expanded the area of freedom that militarism was a and 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 the strength of the united states was actually a reflection of god's will so these were all very, and I'm not doing justice to the arguments, but they were, they were, they were, they were, um, they were. The arguments were 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 made directly in relationship to liberation theology, and and so Central America becomes central to this emerging worldview that we generally call Reaganism or neoliberalism. You're listening to Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. I'm Sasha Lilly. And today I'm joined by Greg Grandin. He's professor of history at Yale University, author of the recently revised Empire's Workshop, Latin America, the United States and the Making of an Imperial Republic, which we're discussing today. That's published by Picador. He's the author of many books, including Fordlandia, Kissinger's Shadow, and The End of the Myth, which won the Pulitzer Prize. So I wanted to ask you, Greg, about the lessons that were learned in the 1980s and then applied elsewhere, learned in Latin America by this coalition of the U.S. right. Um, and one of the key lessons was around counterinsurgency. I wanted to ask you if you could just give us a, a short history of U.S. support for counterinsurgency in a place like El Salvador, which precedes the 1980s, but then become sort of fully fledged in that period? Yeah, well, U.S. involvement in, in a place like El Salvador really takes off after the Cuban Revolution, where the U.S. commits itself to strengthening to the, the word that they often use is professionalize or centralize the intelligence agencies of these allied states, El Salvador being one of them. So in, in, in the 1960s, early 1960s, the U.S. Um, began to create and fortify the security apparatus of El Salvador well before there was an insurgency to counter. El Salvador is a classic place where the counterinsurgency creates the insurgency. A lot of this takes place under the rubric of the Alliance for Progress. And, and the Alliance for Progress is, of course, John F. Kennedy's uh, uh, developmentalist program for Latin America, which was a also a direct response to the Cuban Revolution, where, Reagan, where Kennedy was trying to claim Castro's revolutionary thunder. We will complete the revolution of the Americas. But, we, you know, of course, the, and, and the Alliance for Progress did promote land reform and tax reform and a certain kind of developmentalist capitalism. But it's a classic example of the good cop, bad cop. At the same time, the Alliance for Progress uh, was 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 promoting land reform, moderate land reform, and and some a little bit more just tax structure. Um, it was also arming uh, the, these militaries and strengthening the intelligence agencies of these countries. So uh, so 
to the point where the reformists that the Alliance for Progress hoped hoped to bolster were being singled out for execution by the death squads that the Alliance for Progress had created. And I think that that's the main dynamic of, of, of radicalization in, in countries. And El Salvador is a classic example of that, where the U.S. Uh, funding supports both the the strengthening of the intelligence agency and the strengthening of what becomes a paramilitary network that's that's feeding off of then using information that's gathered by that intelligence agency. There's a you know we think of the word central intelligence agency that the U.S.'s program or project was to centralize intelligence in all of these countries, but that also made meant intelligence that was being fed to death squads and paramilitaries that would single out not just uh, not just communists and not just people that were you know activists that were seen as a threat by the US but all sorts of reformers and activists and democrats and 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 there'd be waves of of radicalization and, and El Salvador Guatemala you know, perfect examples of, 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 of this dynamic that I'm talking about. But yes, El Salvador becomes the place where counterinsurgency is rehabilitated um, in the 1980s. Uh, it's the place where militarists go down uh, working with the Department of Defense. Um, and basically their argument is, you know, the bumpus, the famous bumper stick is read that El Salvador is Spanish for for Vietnam and and you know and these Department of Defense military advisors didn't disagree. They thought El Salvador was a place to get the theory right, and by that they meant mostly meant uh, 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 preventing a, a deepening direct involvement, uh, strengthening the the security apparatus of the country without increasing the number of U.S. boots on the ground. So what lessons were drawn? from this counterinsurgency against the left in Latin America, in places like El Salvador, places like Nicaragua, places like Colombia, which would later be used by neoconservatives, and of course many of them people who actually cut their teeth in Latin America in the 1980s, in their policies and thinking about the U.S. occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book. You know, this is a new edition of a book that I wrote right after the invasion of Iraq, where I was trying to make sense of why all of these Central American hands had come back. Elliot Abrams, Otto Reich, John Poindexter. You know, there was all of these characters from Iran-Contra that, 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 that all of a sudden assumed a prominent role in the U.S.'s post-9-11 uh, a bid to go global, you know, drive into the Persian Gulf. And I was trying to, and, and that is part of the argument, the way that Latin America allows retrenchment. And then once that retrenchment takes place, then the U.S. then goes global. And then once that going global hits a wall or collapses, then the U.S. turns back to Latin America. That's the larger dynamics of the argument. But but yes, a lot of these, a lot of these characters, uh, John, John, John Negroponte, who was the ambassador to Honduras, and then he, uh, that where he basically ran death squads, was then he then he then he becomes then he becomes very prominent in 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 the war in Iraq and the, or the disintegration of Iraq is a better way of putting it. But in terms of counterinsurgency, there's a dynamic of counterinsurgency that goes back almost since the inception of the concept, where counterinsurgents are constantly talking about fighting the other war. Const constantly talking about winning, I mean, to use a phrase associated with Vietnam, winning hearts and minds, or building the state, or building institutional capacity, you know, and the idea is to create a state that is, that is, that is strong enough and capable enough to administer its territory and confront and root out the kind of causes of insurgency. Sometimes this winning of hearts and minds might actually entail some real reform, some real land reform. Other times it's more like window dressing. But the point is, there's this constant talk of, uh, of, of, of the other war. But the fact of the matter is, wherever counterinsurgency has been quote unquote successful in defeating an insurgency, it's usually always just because of a preponderance of power and application of, of, of what otherwise would be known as terrorism, just the, just the use of death squads, right? So in El Salvador, uh, for instance, 
there was a lot of talk about, as I mentioned, getting the theory right. El Salvador was a workshop. It was a laboratory. It was a way to reapply uh, a counterinsurgency theory that had been discredited in Vietnam, and but discredited according to these theorists for the wrong reasons. It was, you know, the reason why it didn't work in Vietnam is because the U.S. violated the theory and 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 escalated and and turned it into a full-on war with boots on the ground. So these theorists said, no, we get a chance to we get a chance for a do-over. We can. We could train the security apparatuses. We could build the state. We can we can win hearts and minds. We could fight the other war. You know, by the other war they meant, again, uh, winning hearts and minds, civic action, uh, some kind of of political and economic reform. And they talked about this incessantly in El Salvador. But the fact of the matter is that none of that helped defeat the FMLN in El Salvador, or none of that worked to win back territory or win allegiance or strengthen a reformist sector within the, 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 the you know, within the domestic bourgeoisie and the security apparatus that would, that would, that would, that would defend a larger kind of general interest against just out and out terror and out and out exploitation. None of that happened. What happened is that, that the bodies mounted. 50,000 uh, disappeared, seven, maybe 70,000 dead. Uh, uh, you know, we, we all we all know the history of El Salvador. The U.S. spent millions of dollars a day supporting, uh, you know, basically supporting these deaths. The massacre of El, El Mazote in 1981, in December 1981, and throughout throughout horrific killings. You know, that ultimately is is uh, is 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 what 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 at least contained the insurgents in El Salvador and, put, and who fought the war to a draw. So it's just an interesting dynamic, this this constantly circling, circling back to, well, we have to kind of build the state. We have to fight the other war. And then, and, and then, and then, but, but, but that's never, that, that never happened. You see the same dynamic in Colombia. You see the same dynamic in Afghanistan. You see the same dynamic in Iraq. Greg Brandon is my guest. He's a historian and the author of Empire's Workshop. I'm Sasha Lilly. This is Against the Grain on Pacifica Radio. So Greg, you're arguing that there's sort of a dialectic that has taken place where the U.S. has attempted to dominate Latin America and that there has been a pushback um, both by you know movements from below and also from Latin American elites, which has had surprisingly beneficial consequences for the United States as it has uh, forced it to refine U.S. hegemony as it's projected onto the rest of the world. And yet you also argue that for elites in the U.S., there's a constant tension there because, of course, they would like to dominate um, without having to refine their domination. But one place where that pushback seems to have led to a different sort of dynamic has been the wave that often called the pink tide of elections in the 2000s, you know, by 2008, a whole number of left-leaning governments had come to power in Latin America. The fates of those governments, I think we could discuss separately, but I wanted to ask you how that changed the landscape of politics in Latin America and to what degree did it interrupt this tried and true pattern of the U.S. turning to Latin America when its imperial ambitions had created crises elsewhere. Yeah, well, it's a perfect example of of, of what I'm arguing, but then also how the conditions have changed, where the argument, in some ways, that dynamic no longer holds. The U.S. regrouped in Central America. The new right came to power, um, uh, formed. The, a governing coalition, which continued on under Clinton, uh, you know, and, and, and certainly under George W. Bush after 9-11. I mean, it, it goes global. It goes global first economically under Clinton in terms of globalization, uh, all of the all, you know, free trade agreements and the and and uh, and, um, and and attempts to institutionalize. A, a, a kind of a kind of a, a, a supranational neoliberal order, 
uh, and then it goes global militarily after after 9-11, which George, George W. Bush. And then, of course, um, that going global collapses, right? It, it, you know, that coalition reaches its end point. It becomes exhausted, you know, domestically, uh, austerity and tax cuts and and the gutting of 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 of, uh, of of the of of the New Deal state had had led to uh, had led to a degree of polarization and and misery that um, that could no longer be ignored. And and in terms of foreign policy, uh, uh, neoliberalism reached its its end point. That you know people can people could pick whatever moment they you know that that neoliberalism as a as a global economic strategy collapsed i mean maybe with the asian crisis maybe with the rise of the pink tide uh you know certainly in 2007 2008 but but at some point it it, it collapses so the two kind of twin twin pillars of 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 the new right coalition uh are no longer you know are crumbling they're crumbling, right? So the, you know the, the the over military overreach in the Persian Gulf, and 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 the and and the, and and pushing neoliberalism to its to its to to the extreme uh, led to led to led to its collapse. So the U.S. could have turned back. You know, it's always a little difficult talking in hypotheticals, but the Obama administration. If we want to look at the Obama administration as a missed opportunity, which I think is now coalescing as a certain kind of common sense, even among, even among Democrats and, and liberals. Um, it certainly was a missed opportunity in Latin America. I mean, there was a moment when Latin America, as you mentioned, with the rise of the pink tide, starting with Chavez in Venezuela and then continuing with Lula in Brazil and Kirchner in Argentina and so on, was ruled, was governed by every historic tendency of, of the Latin American left. At one point, you had a trade unionist in power in Brazil, uh, a military populist in power in Venezuela, uh, a feminist doctor in Argentina, in, um, in, in, uh, in Chile, you had a, you had a, you had a, 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 a new left guerrilla in Uruguay, you had a peasant indigenous activist in, in, in Bolivia. You had a liberation theologian in Paraguay. I mean, the whole slate, it was like a panorama, like a historic panorama. And when Obama was elected, and this was all on the eve of, they, they were eager to welcome him into the pantheon. I mean, I think Lula, maybe it was Chavez or Lula, I think it was Lula who you know, said, you know, he's the fulfillment of of of, of the, the U.S. progressive history, the, the, the you know, the, the, the culmination of the civil rights movement. But what did the Obama administration do? It basically endorsed a coup in Honduras, the first kind of turning point against the pink tide, against the new, return of the new left. It, it allowed a coup in Paraguay. Uh, it was active in supporting the corruption investigation against Lula in, in, Lula in, in, in Brazil. And of course, it did everything it could to isolate Chavez uh, in terms of its energy policy, with the expansion of fracking and natural gas, and turning the United States into into a, into into an energy exporter, which led to the collapse of oil prices and, and led to the containment of Venezuela. So it's again, it's a hypothetical. It's hard to say what Obama could have done, but he could have done he could have done things. He could have he could have pushed more actively for immigration reform rather than doing that kind of devil's bargain. Of, of of trying to get trying to trying to win over the military the the border brutalist first he could have uh, passed you know he could have he could have um, worked with Lula to work out new new a new framework for intellectual property rights around pharmaceuticals you know an issue that certainly is in the news today um, he could have he could have worked with with the new with Latin American who left like FDR did to be you know and you know and to, 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 to put into place a, a kind of a new economic order, a political order that that um, that that uh, that would have had popular support, that could have been an alternative to the to the rise of what we now see the authoritarian neoliberal right. 
Um, and he didn't. He didn't for a lot of ways. You know, I wrote about this in The Nation, where if you go back and you look at his comments about the overthrow of Lugo in Paraguay and then the, the, over, then the impeachment of Dilma and the jailing of Lula in Brazil, he... He, he the the words that he used to describe those are the exact same tone that he uses to that he uses to describe the the election of Donald Trump. Basically, he you know he you know the institutions are strong. We trust democracy. It really was a kind of missed opportunity. But okay, let's bracket that because there's a lot to be said about Obama. But let's jump ahead to Trump. Trump couldn't couldn't take advantage of 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 uh, of, of allies in Latin America either. I mean, he had Duque in Colombia, he had Bolsonaro in Brazil, and he flailed in Latin America too. So I, so I think, and this is an argument I make in the new epilogue to the book, is that dynamic in which Latin America serves as a workshop for the United States for ascending political coalitions actually no longer holds. Because what is happening is the United States is exporting its own extremism. So you look at Bolivia, you look at Brazil, and what you see are libertarians, what you see on the power of the National Rifle Association, what you see are Pentecostals, what you see is a certain kind of uh, 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 kind of Trumpism, you know, in Bo Bolsonaro is an example of Trumpism on steroids, and that doesn't actually create the conditions for using Latin America as, 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 a, as a training ground, right? Uh, I think it's a, a marker of the uh, the centrifugal forces that are pulling the United States apart. To you know, put a long story short, is I think that um, the conditions have changed, and there no longer can aspiring political coalitions in the United States co use Latin America as a kind of way to coalesce themselves. That's over. I don't know what the alternative is. Maybe it's just maybe it's just ongoing polarization and disaggregation. That would be my guess. Uh, cycles of, of partial reform followed by cycles of of more extreme reaction. But I don't think that we'll, I don't think we'll see a, another kind of political coalition that's able to mobilize Latin America the way the New Deal and the New Right did. Well, let me end by asking you then if you can make a judgment about that state of affairs. I mean, you write about, and you've just spoken about, the emergence of all sorts of really fringe right-wing tendencies in the United States, now in Latin America, including QAnon. If the United States no longer is using Latin America as its crucible, as its workshop, is that of benefit? to social movements on the left? I mean, one presumes that it would be. Or do you think that the terrain has been changed so much by these elements of the right inside Latin America that it makes things less auspicious than it, it would otherwise be? It's a good question. I don't know what the answer is. You know, I don't, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> it's, you know, as as Joe and Lai said when asked about the French Revolution, it's too early to tell. What is you know, it's too early to say. You know, I don't I, I don't know. I mean, it, one would think on the one hand that the that the that the disaggregation of the United States would create a space in which in which Latin America could chart its own path. On the other hand, the exportation of extremism has been intense, and we see this in you know we see this nowhere better than in Brazil with Bolsonaro. I mean, Bolsonaro's son has a shrine. I mean, Bolsonaro talks about the Second Amendment as if the Brazilian Constitution has a Second Amendment guaranteeing gun rights, but it, of course it doesn't because it's a different constitution. <laughs> but but um, you know, the rise of QAnon, the crazy obsession about gender and critical race theory. and I think many listeners would be surprised to know that Judith Butler, the gender theorist at UC Berkeley, is a prominent target of the Latin American target and obsession. Yeah, obsession in, 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 in Colombia and Brazil. Yeah, she's an obsession. And, and, and the way all of this kind of collapses into each other. I'm as critical as, as the U.S., empire and U.S. foreign policy as anybody, but one has to acknowledge that the fact that one of the reasons why the U.S., why Latin America has had no interstate wars, significant interstate wars since the 1930s, is because the United States administered the region as a single region for the most part. If any country broke out, tried to break out 
you know, Guatemala, Chile, Cuba, the U.S. would bring it to heel or isolate it. But for the most part, the U.S. didn't play off one region off of another. You know, that's changed. You know, the United States is much, Washington is totally willing as its power recedes to play off, you know, depending on, you know, to use Colombia as, as you know, much the way it uses Israel in the Middle East as a proxy for, for, uh, for a kind of hard line and to project project militarism outward to countries that, that, you know, that, that might be, that might be um, trying to forge an independent path. So I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, it's a good question. It's a good question. I, I, you know, on the one hand, there's, there's still a lot of inspiration. I mean, you look at the social movements in, in Chile that just, that just um, managed to Force the state to, to 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 accept the need for a constitutional referendum to 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 do away with the constitution that was put into place by Pinochet. You look at the protests in Colombia. You look at the resilience of an ideal of social democracy and social rights in Latin America. And one has to be inspired. The deep sense of history, you know, um, among social movements. But on the other hand, the forces of reaction, not only are they powerful, they're unhinged, you know, much as they are in the United States. They, they, you know, I think that in some ways the relationship between any kind of economic logic or political logic has been severed from the actions and ideas of the right, which is always a scary moment. Indeed. Greg Brandon has been my guest uh, we've been discussing his book, Empire's Workshop, which has been recently revised. Subtitle is Latin America, the United States, and the Making of an Imperial Republic. That book is published by Picador, and you can find a link to it at againstthegrain.org. Greg Grandin is the author of many books, including Fordlandia, The End of the Myth, for which he won the Pulitzer Prize, and Kissinger's Shadow, and he teaches history at Yale University. You've been listening to Against the Grain. I'm Sasha Lilly. Thanks so much for listening, and please tune in again next time. Against the Grain is produced by Sasha Lilly and C.S. Song. Please visit us online at againstthegrain.org, where you'll find on-demand and downloadable audio and a way to sign up for our podcast. And you can check us out on Facebook at Against the Grain Radio or follow us on Twitter at Radio Against. Radio Against.